Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. studying from the Bible corresponds with real life. As most of you know, my mother passed away this past Friday, and we will bury her this Wednesday. And I appreciate all of the kind words and sentiment and people who looked out for me both here locally and via the internet. I appreciate the outpouring of love and kindness that I've received and that my family has received. So thank you all for that. As I mentioned, we're going to bury my mother on Wednesday. Today, we're going to worship God. Today, we'll continue looking into God's word and being built up by what God has said. The portion of Romans 4, and you can turn there, the portion of Romans 4 that we're going to start reading today has to do with faith. And particularly, it has to do with defining what faith is. For many years now, you have heard me say that the definition of faith that I prefer is that faith is Trusting God's word and counting God's word as more true 
than your circumstances. Because your circumstances may not always look like God is in the middle of what's going on in your life. Faith stands on God's word and says, regardless of what's happening in my life, I'm still going to believe that God's word is more true than my circumstances. And that's what Paul is going to talk about now. He's going to talk about Abraham, who was facing some genuinely distressing circumstances. Because God's word was, you're going to have a child. Through that child, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's a remarkable promise from God to Abraham. The only problem was Abraham not only didn't have a child, but his wife Sarah, her womb was essentially dead. And God waited long enough that Abraham himself had reached the point where fathering children was going to be practically impossible. And so he was facing some really dire circumstances. He was facing the reality, physically, that there's just no way he and his wife were going to be able to have a child. And through that child, said God, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And yet Abraham waited another 20 years after receiving the promise and still did not have that child. And Sarah became increasingly incapable of having children. He became increasingly incapable of fathering children. And yet the promise of God stood. So Paul is going to say today that Abraham, despite those circumstances, believed God. So despite awful circumstances, circumstances that would say God's word can't be true, there's just no way this could actually happen. Despite those circumstances, Abraham did not waver in his faith, says Paul. And so that's where I get the idea of the definition that faith is counting God's word as more true than your circumstances. Because I'm sure that we can all think of circumstances in life that have caused us to wonder whether God is really going to come through. God said that he was going to take care of us, that he loves us, that he's going to provide for us, that he's going to get us through the hardships and the difficulties of life. And yet, these hardships and these difficulties turn up What are we going to do? Are we going to say, well, the hardships and the difficulties prove that God doesn't mean what he said? Or are we going to say, God said it. God promised it. I'm going to trust God's promises more than I trust my circumstances. Now, right behind that, right behind saying that Abraham, despite his difficult circumstances, still had faith in God's word. Right behind that, Paul is going to say, yes, difficulties in life come, but then he's going to describe why the difficulties in life come and what the purpose of them is. And the purpose of them is to build us up in faith. The purpose is never to demolish our faith. God never takes us through difficult circumstances so that he can lose us or so that we will despair. He takes us through it 
to build up our confidence. In fact, the particular word that Paul is going to use is a form of a word that means triedness, which is a word that we don't use much anymore in the English language. But when you put on armor, for instance, like David put on the armor when he was going to go out and fight against Goliath, he said, I I can't wear this. I haven't tried it yet. And that's the idea that that's what God is doing in our lives when he brings the trouble. The trouble comes to try us. Despite the trouble, we get through the trouble, and that gives us the confidence when the next trouble comes that we're going to get through that trouble too because we got through the last trouble. And God's faithfulness is demonstrated in that way to us, and the end result of that is hope. This morning, we're going to also look at a bit of Genesis. Sometimes we have this tendency to kind of hold up the Old Testament saints or the biblical saints or apostles and and think, boy, those are supernatural people. Those are people that are well beyond us. Those are not people like me. I would never have been able to do what they did. But I'm going to show you one example where Abraham is just like you and I. God makes a covenant with him. God gives him justification in response to Abraham's faith, and yet Abraham is still a sinner like the rest of us. And that ought to give you a great deal of confidence, because God loves and God saves people just like us and just like Abraham, people who fail, people who, in Abraham's case, lie. And here's God in Proverbs saying things like, A lying tongue is an abomination before God. So God doesn't like liars at all, and yet Abraham falls firmly into that category. We're going to see that. So it is very, very reassuring to us as we read the whole of the Bible to recognize that Abraham was a man like us, a man who could and did fail. And yet, because he had confidence in God's word, God gave him justification in exchange for that faith. And that's why Paul could pick it up, move it into the New Testament and say, look, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So now believe God, believe what God has said to you, believe what God has done for you, believe what Christ has already accomplished. And for that simple belief, you're going to receive righteousness from God, despite the fact that you're lying sinners. So it's good to know that that's the way God has always worked. Thus endeth the introduction. Are you in Romans 4? Yes. We have read most of Romans 4 the last couple of weeks. So this week we will start right at verse 16. A couple of weeks ago, I titled the message that I preached, and I don't usually give titles for my messages, but when I put them on the internet, I sort of need to give them a title just to differentiate them from what I said other weeks. So they're just kind of reminder little titles that I write, but I called it, It Has to Be Grace. Well, this week, I'm tempted to call it, It Has to Be Faith, because it's By grace, through faith. Those are the combinations. God is gracious to us in giving us his spirit, which produces faith in us, which God then graciously exchanges for righteousness. So it all is grace, but it is all involved in faith. 
So we have to have that confidence in God, in his word, in his promises, and that's where we get actual righteousness. 16 starts, for this reason, it is by faith. It has to be by faith that it might be in accordance with grace. There are those two words combined again. It has to be by faith and it has to be by grace. Why? In order that the promise, which we've been talking about the promise for several weeks now, the promise was to Abraham, you're going to have a child. Through that child, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Through your seed, through your ongoing generations of people, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed by God through your progeny. That is the promise that Paul is talking about, so that the promise may be certain to all the descendants of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, those would be the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. That would be the Gentiles who have faith, so that Abraham then is the father of us all. So the very fact that the Old Testament says what it says, the very fact that the Old Testament recounts for us the story of Abraham and how he was given an impossible promise, and yet he did not waver, that becomes our example, Jew or Gentile, that righteousness comes by faith, and it is a result of grace. So Paul keeps saying, it has to be grace, it has to be faith. It can't be works. It can't be your personal righteousness. It can't be your personal goodness. It has to be grace through faith. Now, we all know this is just standard Christianity. We all know that our good works count for nothing. Janine and I were just talking about it last night, that ultimately you get credit for nothing, But the good news is, as frustrating as that might be to us, because we all would like to think that God has seen our good works. God has seen our devotion. God has seen the things that we do. We'd like to think that, and if we don't get any credit for it, that's kind of frustrating. So then why the good works? The good works are a demonstration of the fact that we've been saved. So they have value in God's economy, but they don't save. The good news is, if you don't get credit for your good works, you don't get demerits for your bad works. Because nothing you did determined your salvation, because your salvation was determined before the foundation of the world, before you were here able to do any good or any bad. Which is the argument that Paul's going to make when we get to Romans 9 and he's going to talk about two twins in a womb and Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated and the two babies in a womb having done no good, no evil. Nevertheless, God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So what's he arguing there? He's saying neither the good works nor the bad works were the reason that God chose. God chose based on grace. It's got to be grace. So it's good to know that even though we don't get positive merits for our good works. God also doesn't hold our evil and our sin against us. Faith in Christ is enough to get us positive justification and eternal righteousness, despite being the kind of people we are. 
So Paul says, starting at verse 17, he's now reminding his readers of the promise as it is written. The father of many nations I have made you in the sight of him who believed. That's Abraham, the one who believed. Even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In the context of Paul speaking right here, don't miss what he's saying. He's not just saying God spoke worlds into existence. We know that's a fact. We know from the early part of Genesis that that's how the creation came into being. But that's not Paul's emphasis right here. We think miraculously things like God calls into being things that are not, and we think of all the physical things that God might call into being. That's still not what Paul is getting at. What he's saying here is that God can declare positive righteousness to you where none exists. And that's a wow moment. He can declare you righteous though you're not in exchange for faith by grace. He can call into being things that are not. Is there anybody here who wants to claim that they actually have some positive righteousness in and of themselves? You accomplished it. You did so good. You kept the law. You followed God's word. You did so well that he's determined and obligated to save you because you've done so very well. Well, of course, nobody's going to say that. What we recognize about ourselves, the more that we have the spirit of God, the more we come to the recognition of our own sinfulness, our own depravity, our own failure, and our own inability to justify ourselves before a thrice holy God. So then how in the world are any of us going to get to heaven? It has to be that God calls into being things that are not. He has to give us the righteousness that we can't achieve. Because it has to be by grace. If you could achieve it, it wouldn't be grace. But the fact that you can't achieve it, the fact that you are an enemy of God naturally, the fact that you are a sinner naturally, puts you right in the category that Paul refers to when he says, God justifies the ungodly. So that's God calling into being things that are not. Anybody here want to admit that they're among the ungodly? I mean, Jesus came to save sinners. You're all sick of me asking you to hold your hand up, aren't you? That's because we're sinners. That's because you're sinners. And I would completely agree. Verse 18. In hope against hope. That's a really interesting phrase. Abraham had hope that God was going to accomplish everything God said, and yet his circumstances left him hopeless. But in hope against hope, he believed. That's the verbal form of faith there. He believed he had faith in God in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken when God said, so shall your descendants be. God took him out and said, look up at the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Look at the sands of the sea. If you could count the sand, that's how many descendants you're going to have. To a man who not only had no children, 
but who was increasingly too old to produce children. So you can see the hope against hope factor there. But because God said it, Abraham believed it, even though his circumstances denied it. Verse 19, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, you could read that and think, well, Abraham is just excellent. He is supernatural. He never wavered in his faith. I mean, look at that man go. God said, leave your home, leave your family, go to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you all that land. And Abraham, by golly, got up, took his family and went there and God showed him the land. And boy, Abraham did excellently the whole time. That's not the truth. The truth is he went into a tent with Hagar because he knew what God's promise was, but he also knew Time is ticking. I'm going to have to produce an heir. He and his wife agree. He goes into a tent with Hagar. He tries to work it out in his flesh. And yet, Paul says, his faith in God didn't waver. But that seems like an example of wavering faith. Turn over to Genesis for just a moment. Let's look at another example. As I promised you in Genesis 20, which the NASB which likes to give titles to chapters for some reason, extra-biblical titles. They have entitled this chapter, Abraham's Treachery. Da-da-da-da! But even by that title, they are recognizing that Abraham was not exactly acting like a good and godly fellow at this moment. Here's the story. Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev, And he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, Abraham did this, we're going to find out in a moment, because he was trying to protect his own skin. He was afraid that if the king saw Sarah, who was beautiful, that the king would kill Abraham so that he could get to Sarah. People debate about this. Abraham technically didn't lie in as much as Sarah was a half-sister to him, if you go back and look into the genealogies. But come on. I mean, he really said, oh, no, she's my sister. Didn't mention the half-sister thing. Certainly didn't say, this is my wife. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay a nation even though they're blameless? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister. So he's sending the blame Abraham's way. Abraham ought to be faulted here. And she herself said, he is my brother. 
So in the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart, you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. There's a very sovereign moment. God made sure that Abimelech did not come near Sarah and in so doing said, I made sure that you did not sin against me. So what God was doing was making sure that the promise he made to Abraham and Sarah could not be messed with because if Sarah were to become pregnant and had slept with a foreign king, then that could have been the foreign king's child. But it had to be Abraham's child. So notice what God did. God remained faithful to Abraham and Sarah, even though Abraham and Sarah engaged in a lie. So they engaged in sinful behavior, but God remained faithful to them. Because as I keep saying, it's grace. It has to be grace. And God is going to keep his word. He's going to keep his unconditional covenant that he's made with Abraham, despite what Abraham does. Despite the fact that a foreign king wanted to sleep with Sarah. Nevertheless, God made sure that that foreign king did not sin against himself so that Sarah remained purely Abraham's wife. So that when the child was born, it was a child of miracle through whom all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. So God said, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. I think it's interesting that Abimelech argues with God and basically says, I haven't touched her yet. In the integrity of my heart, I did this. I'm a good guy. And that God ends up saying, no, it's not you. I kept you from touching her. I made sure you didn't sin against me. So God takes credit for every little decision. I know I say far too often that God is in control of every aspect of human life, especially among those that he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. He guarantees that we never sin against him so badly that we would destroy the relationship between us and him. He is constantly keeping us to himself. And here you see an example of that. Verse 7, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you surely are going to die, you and all those who are yours. That's a pretty good inspiration to take the woman back. Not only are you going to die, but everybody you know, and the horse you rode in on. Everybody's going to die. So Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all the servants and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were greatly frightened. Well, yeah. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered that you have done this? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely there is no fear of Yahweh in this place. And they 
will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me everywhere that we go. Say of me, he is my brother. And Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before you, before all who are with you. And before all men you are cleared. And Abraham prayed to God, And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So what did Abraham prove in that story? We went back and read it so that I could show you Abraham's just like you. He's willing to lie to save his own skin. He made a deal with his wife. You know, when we're among those foreign heathen, which, by the way, don't miss the fact that even though he was a foreign heathen king, nevertheless, God came to him in a dream, and nevertheless, God kept him from sinning against him because God's in charge of absolutely everybody. And Abraham made a deal with his wife and said, wherever we go, let's just claim we're brother and sister because you're beautiful and they'll kill me to get to you. So in order to preserve my life, let's just lie. So in other words, Abraham's like us. And yet God justified him because Abraham believed when God said, you're going to have a child, your offspring are going to be so numerous, they're going to be like the sands of the sea and the stars of the heavens, and through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. Through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And Paul says, well, then he did not waver in that faith, in that belief that somehow God was going to do it. Despite his circumstances, despite his sinful lying nature, he believed that God was nevertheless going to do what God said he was going to do because after all, he's God. So let's apply that for a moment. God has said that he's going to preserve you faithful to the end. You think he's going to do it? Yeah, are you going to have moments in your life where you're not all you're cracked up to be? You're going to have moments in your life where you stumble in your faith? You're going to have moments where you look at yourself and say, how, how could God save a wretch like me? I fail him constantly. The answer is, what has he said? What has he promised? What has he covenanted? What was the blood that was spilled? It was the blood of his own son to establish the new covenant of grace and faith. And do you think he's going to let that covenant fail just because you're not living up? No, he has already determined that he's going to save you before the foundation of the world. He knew you were going to be like this before he ever chose you. And you're here based in the faithfulness of God's own word and his own promises and his own covenants that he made with himself. So that ought to give you great confidence 
It's great to know that despite the fact that you're you, again, just last night, my lovely wife said to me, you know, sometimes I can't get past myself. And I think, how, how could God save me? Well, he can call things into being that aren't. He can declare your salvation and justification even though you're not just and even though you seem unsavable. God, who can do whatever he wants to do, has already told you what he's going to do. He's going to preserve you by his spirit. He's going to pay your sin price through his son, and he's going to bring you all the way home safely through the things that he brings into your life to produce greater faith in you, which he's going to exchange for justification and eternal righteousness. And that's just good, good news. Somebody this week said to me, an internet person, said to me this week, boy, you spend a lot of time emphasizing doctrine. And I wrote back, I don't know how to not do doctrine. Everything you believe about Christ is some form of teaching, some form of doctrine. But look right there, everything I just said to you so far this morning is basic Pauline theological doctrine. And doesn't it make you feel good? Yes, indeed. Doesn't it encourage your faith? Yes. It's the whole point of sound doctrine. The reason I spend so much time pounding the Bible and pounding doctrine is because the more you know about what God has actually literally said, the better you're going to feel about your relationship with God. The more you know that he knows what you're like, the more you realize that he knows how often you fail. And the more you know about the unchanging nature of his love then the more you're going to feel confident in this lifetime and the more you're going to feel embarrassed about your failures, the more you're going to press toward God because he's the God that saved you and you love him because he first loved you. And all of that is a result of sound doctrine, which is why Paul spent so much time in sound doctrine and why I'm not afraid to just keep pounding doctrine. All right, so we're back in Romans 4. I'm in verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being assured that what God has promised He's able to perform. That's the essence of what faith is. Being assured that God's word is more true than your circumstances and what God has said, he's able to perform. What God has promised, he'll do. And that's across the board in the Bible. Now, I don't want to start ranting, which I'm certainly capable of doing, but I get so, so frustrated listening to people ostensibly preaching who say that somehow all the promises and the covenants that God has made with Israel now don't count anymore like God somehow changes his mind. And yet Paul can say that everything God promises he's able to perform, which means that everything in this Bible 
from first to last, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, every word in here is part of God's promise to human beings on the planet, and he is going to accomplish every single bit of it if you can find some place where God reneges on any promise that he's ever made, then we have no confidence because God's able to just change his mind willy-nilly. Sure, I love you, Leon. Sure, I'm going to take care of you. Sure, I'm going to provide for you. Oh, you did that? Never mind. That's not the God we serve. The God we serve is fully capable of doing everything he ever promised to do. And that means he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's not going to let go of you. He's not going to let you fail. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to let you become so engrossed in yourself that you become repugnant to him. He is going to save you despite you. You know, I keep using that phrase, take sides with God against yourself. Yeah, that's essentially it. Take sides with God and with his word that he can save even wretches like me. And Micah, I just went with Micah for no good reason. But he nodded. He agreed. And so did April, which I found interesting. Being fully assured that what he had promised he was able to perform And therefore, also, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written, because that's written back in the book of Genesis. And so that simply could have been just a historic fact. It could have been written down by Moses, probably the writer of the Pentateuch. It could have been written down for sake of Abraham, that Abraham believed God and that was counted to him for righteousness. But Paul sees that as fundamental theology, that that shows God's way of thinking and acting since the beginning, that the God who does not change reacts to people having faith in what he has said. So Paul has said, now it's not for his sake only that this was written, that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, so quick test. Anybody here actually seen the risen Lord yet? No, I shouldn't put my hand up either. No, none of us have seen him yet. Okay, let's watch this one. How many of you believe he was raised from the dead? Remarkable, right? Okay, the very fact that you believe that is an indication that you have faith in what God not only promised, but then did. And that faith, says Paul, is being reckoned as righteousness to us, which is why it was written down in Genesis that righteousness, justification, came in exchange for faith. The same way that Abraham believed God's word, which was much more limited than the amount of word from God that we have now. But he had God's word and he believed it. It was counted to him for righteousness. Same thing for us. God has said many, many things now, which is why we keep reading and reading and reading the Bible so that we can become familiar with what God has said. 
And God has said that he had raised his son from the dead. And we all universally believe that, even though we've never seen it. That's an act of faith. So follow the logic here again, starting at verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Okay, there's a really doctrinal statement. Let's dissect that for a moment because it's truly, truly wonderful. Jesus did two things at Calvary. Well, one at Calvary and one in the, in the grave. He did two things. He died and then he rose again. The dying part satisfied our sinfulness and the debt being paid. When Jesus died, his blood flowed. That blood was the adequate price to pay for the sin debt of all the people who God had chosen since before the foundation of the world. But that's not all he did. He didn't just die and then stay dead. He rose again, proving that God accepted that sacrifice. And as a consequence, we are not only forgiven, we are positively justified. Our justification is the result of Christ's finished work, which is why I keep saying our faith is rooted and grounded in the finished work of Christ. Abraham believed, I'm going to have a child. Through him, the families of the earth are going to be blessed. I get this land in perpetuity. That was the content of Abraham's faith. The content of our faith is Christ died for our sinfulness and was raised for our justification. We believe that a dead man got up again. And we believe that the dead man who got up again was the very son of God. And we believe that his blood was of such value that when his blood spilled, it paid our sin debt utterly and completely so that there's nothing left for us to have to pay. The whole concept of purgatory aside, there's nothing left for us to have to pay because he paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is standard Christian theology. But then he got up again. And don't miss how important the resurrection is to all Pauline theology. It is the resurrection from the dead that not only proves our justification, our positive righteousness. Not only are we not negatively bad. He paid for the negative badness. But now we are positively good and justified in the sight of God all because of what Jesus did. So our faith is rooted and grounded in what Christ did. He paid the sin penalty, but then he raised again for our justification. So there's nothing left for us to do. Our sin debt is paid for. Remember I said a while ago, not only do your good works not count for anything, but your bad works don't count against you because your bad works have already been paid for. 
the blood has already covered them all of them even the ones you'll do this afternoon the ones you'll do next week and a year from now he knew you were going to do those and he already paid for that but far beyond that you don't get any credit for your good works because your goodness has all been satisfied in the fact that Christ himself raised from the dead giving you full complete justification so your badness and your goodness is all wrapped up in Christ he did all of it therefore we have to go to the therefore now I've been building to the therefore. You following me so far? Yes. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Okay, that's us. We already have been, past tense, justified. How? By Christ's resurrection and our faith in the God who raised Christ from the dead. Our faith in the finished work of Christ means that our justification is a finished deal. Even though we don't always feel justified. Even though we can look at ourselves and say, I sin constantly. I fail regularly. Nevertheless, in the counsels of God, in the counsels of heaven, in the courts of God, we are already justified individuals. In fact, Paul is going to go further than that by the time we get to Romans 8 and say that we were called, we were predestined and already glorified. So God has already accomplished, past tense, everything necessary for our full, complete redemption and salvation. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We lose some sense of what that means. But remember Abimelech and all his men, how scared they were? Okay, that's not us. We don't have that fear of God. Can you remember a time in your life where you recognized your own depravity and sinfulness and God and the concept of God and the concept of judgment scared you? That's part of how he drives you to Christ is to bring you to a genuine recognition of your own sinfulness, your own depravity, your own failure, and your own lack of self-righteousness. And that should produce fear in you. Because if God is real and God is out there and judgment is real, you're in big, big trouble. But then, in genuine faith, by the Spirit of God inhabiting you, you move past that to the recognition of everything we're talking about this morning, that you are justified because of the finished work of Christ. And having been justified, now you're at peace with God. I get up regularly because I'm, well, me. I get up regularly and think, God has got to be so angry at me right now. There's just no way that God can be pleased with me. There's no way that I've lived up to everything he's done for me. I'm not a good example. I'm not, you know. And yet, Paul declares that we have the ceasing of againstness, which is what that word peace means. The Irene Greek word means the ceasing of the battle, the fight, the againstness, that that is over with and you and God are finally at peace with each other. And you're at peace with each other not because of what you did, not because you 
accomplished peace by laying down your gloves. You were fighting with God. You were an enemy of God. You were a sinner against God. You were keeping up all of the contrariness that is you. He made peace with you through his son. And that's the way Paul put it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the peace came from. So one more time, as I keep saying, God has accomplished everything necessary for your full and complete redemption and salvation. He accomplished the faith part by his spirit. Faith is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. He accomplished the sacrifice of Christ that paid for your sin debt. He accomplished the raising of Christ, which satisfied your justification, which resulted in peace. All of that was done by God through Christ. You'll notice that he didn't say that was done by God through Jesus and Jeff. There's no combination of Jesus and you. It's always through Jesus. He did it. He did it all. And that, again, is why we keep saying it's grace, grace, grace. <coughs> I'm going to get to my stopping point one way or the other, even with this amphibian in my throat, even with this relentless headache. Through whom? Through Jesus Christ, through God doing things for us, through Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Through Jesus Christ, we have obtained our introduction into faith, into grace, into the grace that we stand in. You will notice that unlike the faith in faith preachers, and when Tom and I were out in California, we were taught that, that faith was something you had to rev up in yourself, that you would view what the preacher called God's batting average, and you would see that he accomplished his own word all the time, and then you would take what he called the leap of faith, and you would sort of cast yourself on Jesus in faith. And that is all the idea that you do it. It's in you. You rev up your own faith, and then God gives you credit for your own faith. You'll notice that Paul here states just the opposite. He says that we obtained our introduction by faith into this grace through Christ. Christ accomplished it. Christ did it. If you didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit of God, there is no way that you would ever come to faith in Christ. You would see that as a silly old wives' tale. But a minute ago, I asked you, how many of you believe that God actually raised Jesus? And all your hands went up. So where did you get that faith? Where did you get that confidence? That's not something you built up in yourself. You didn't see that God was a gentleman, and therefore you could trust his word. I've heard that too. You did not take the leap of faith. Faith was instilled in you by the Spirit of God. Why? Because God chose you since before the foundation of the world and in the process of getting you from this world to his heaven, he is then justifying you and the means that he did it through is faith. And Paul is going to argue that even the circumstances of this life 
are designed to produce faith in you. So God is even conducting the circumstances of this life in such a way that he is building up your faith, which he's then going to accredit for righteousness. So again, he does it all. Am I beating this dead horse to death more yet? Dead horse to death. I don't know. Am I, am I pounding this enough? I want you to see, I want you to get, if you leave here with nothing else today, I want you to walk out of here thinking, wow, God really did it all. I get no credit. I get no demerits. This is all about God and his glory. And God deserves his worship and his glory regardless of the circumstances of our lives. And we need to make sure that we always credit God with everything that he has done, with the magnificence of his grace and the fact that he has imputed righteousness to us through Christ. And that is nothing that we get to take credit for. Are you getting it yet? Yes. I know I'm pounding away at it. But I, I listen to preachers all the time. And they say some of the silliest stuff. Preachers are silly people. They, they just say some of the most ridiculous stuff. And they encourage people to work harder and run faster and jump higher and exercise their own faith and and just pound on them from Sinai to try to encourage them to more good works to try to get themselves saved. And, and I just think you have just undermined the, the glory of God. You've undermined the word of God, the doctrine of God. You don't need a God who you can satisfy, a God that you can obligate. You don't need him because you can do it yourself. But if you recognize what the Bible really says about you, you'll come to the recognition that there's just nothing you can do. There's just nothing you can do. There's just nothing you can do. You got nothing. And God does it all by grace, through faith. And that is just such good news. Comfort. So what do you do? Have faith in him. Give up on yourself. Stop trying to plead your works. If he takes your good works into account, he has to take your bad works into account. And trust me, for most of us, the bad works outweigh the good ones. You don't want any of that. You want grace, grace, grace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. That's what we exult in. That's what we raise up. That's what we lift up. That's what we sing about. That's what we praise God for. We are all hoping for the glory of God. Yes. Trying not to get emotional. I haven't cried since my mom died. But Friday, 520, she went to see the glory of God. That's our hope. That's what keeps us going. 
That's why we persevere in the faith. Because we're looking forward to exalting the glory of God. And how do you get there? It's not going to be you. It's not going to be your works. It's going to be the grace of God who did it all, who brought you to faith in Christ and everything that Christ did and everything that Christ is. Therefore, we love him. I think I'm done. (laughs) You get it? Are there any questions? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.